Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new Commercial Property Executive podcast. I am Laura Kalugar, and today I've invited JLL Research Manager Chad Buke and JLL Director of Industrial Research George Kutrow to find out more about top big box markets in the U.S. and what lies ahead for the industrial sector in the year to come. Let's start by a brief description of the big box industry in the U.S. nowadays. How would you describe it? I think we should first describe what we categorize as, as big box and really the, the class A modern bulk distribution product in that, that really the, the top industrial investors are looking at. So in our market, we really describe that as over 30 foot clear, built post 1990, uh, ESFR sprinkler, precast construction and uh, a high dock ratio to building square footage, usually at a minimum of one dock for every 10,000 square feet. And with that being said, um, the big box market is still very frothy. A lot of demand, uh, especially coming from the coasts where you're seeing a lot of continuous imports coming from overseas that are continue to drive demand in the United States because we're, we're the number one economy in the world and there's still a lot of consumption happening and a lot of those goods are coming from Asia and Europe to fuel this buying frenzy that we're still in. The economy has really elongated longer than we've ever seen it before, which is creating this demand, continuous demand to warehouse goods because of the appetite still out there. And on that note, I, I will say that 2019, based on some of the figures now, has been a little bit slower than really a record 2017 and 2018. Uh, according to our national third quarter stats, in 2017, we had 23 new leases uh, over 1 million square feet. And in 2018, there were 17 leases over a million square feet. And at the mid-year, uh, you know, I know obviously a few more deals have gotten done, but at the mid-year of 2019, GLL was tracking about 14 uh, mega box leases um, done year to date. But just in Chicago, you know, we, we've seen a really big pickup and, and we expect that in the fourth quarter around the country that there will be a little bit more activity, but slightly lower than, than really a record 2017. And just the point on a million square footer is like a grand slam home run. Those, those buildings really uh, epitomize uh, demand for large users expanding in the local markets and they don't have, they don't occur all the time. And it's all due to really pent up demand where you see these types of facilities being built. The sweet spot across the country, as Chad alluded to, from 17 to 19 was really 350 to 750 in terms of user size. Uh, prior to that, after we recovered from the recession, you saw the million square footers pop up because that was, again, pent up demand because no one was doing anything because of the sluggish economy. And then it just all of a sudden roared back. We saw all these million square foot distribution facilities being developed across the country because of the increased demand. And then it slowed down in 17 and 18. So occupiers are responding to this continued change in consumers purchasing presence by taking more facilities in more locations. So developers keep building. But what about absorption? Absorption is keeping pace with uh, demand. I think our third quarter numbers showed of this, the stuff that was delivered in 19, roughly 10% of it's still vacant. 
Uh, and it's just, and it's typically you're seeing huge absorption numbers and huge pre-leasing numbers along the coasts where uh, supply is really outstripping demand or demand, pardon me, is really outstripping supply. And then in some of the Midwest markets, like an Indy, a Columbus, and Memphis, and Kansas City, they're also seeing demand outstrip supply, and you're you're seeing a lot of pre-leasing going on in those markets as well. Which are the main destinations of choice for most occupiers? If you look at the, across the country, um, you know Southern California, LA, and the Inland Empire really is the, the top largest. Market and that's really based on well, okay, import volume. Take a step back. Talk about population. Okay? Sure, that's where it all starts. Sure, yeah, you have to consider the East Coast mega region between Washington to Boston is really the densest uh, chunk of population. Some of the biggest cities, uh, also the most traffic congestion. But um, there's those are also seaport markets as well. So if you look at a map of the United States. Um, you know, the Southern California, the LA market just alone is 800 million square feet. If you move into the Inland Empire, really uh, the, the premier big box market within the country, that's 528 million square feet. Northern California is about also another 500 million square feet. But within New Jersey, that's 700 million square feet. Um, Chicago is a billion square feet. So we're technically the uh, the largest single market, but those are really the main entry points for imported goods and, and local consumption. Um, Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Pennsylvania, those are also major uh, consumption nodes and distribution nodes. So that's how you look at it from a, a population and supply chain and, and you know industrial real estate uh, availability perspective. And again, we can't emphasize this enough. It's really tied to the population nodes. You know, California mm -hmm. has the largest population in the country. And then Chad alluded to the East Coast, which has the highest and most densely populated population node in the, in the country itself. And so you're going to have these distribution centers as close as possible to these consumer nodes because of the population growth. Atlanta is another one where you've got a huge population in the southeast and growing because a lot of people are flocking there because of the weather conditions. The same with Dallas, where, again, and the Texas market where you have people moving from other states to that market because of weather and economically easier for them to move to because it's more favorable to be there. When you look at some of our national construction stats, those markets all come to the top. Inland Empire, 28 million square feet under construction. Dallas, 25 million square feet under construction. Chicago, 18 million square feet under construction. Atlanta, 16 million square feet. So the developers are responding in those markets. Um, they have good transportation connections and, and good populations. You're mentioning really big numbers. How about rents for these facilities? Rents are escalating. Along the, both coasts, rents are escalating between 5 and 10%. Again, it's, it's a, a supply-demand situation where demand is outstripping supply, so they're seeing growth in those markets. Um, in the Midwest, most of the Midwest markets are seeing 2 to 5% growth. Chicago is unique um, because of the fact that we have very little entries to barrier, meaning our topography to develop. We've got flat land. We don't have to deal with hills or unique weather conditions that 
you know, don't allow you to have facilities to build facilities easily. We're a pro that each a lot of the cities where the developments are, are going are pro development and encourage more development for tax dollar basis. So in Chicago, we're not seeing the rent spikes as most other places because our demand and supply are at equilibrium. So therefore, in certain situations, yes, rents can be pushed, like in our infill markets, which is another topic to talk about. But most of the big box rents are just holding firm. How about the investment side? How are cap rates holding? Demand for big box product was solid in core markets, but there's a decreased amount of product to purchase in these markets. And this has pushed investors into secondary markets. Well, you, you've, got, you've got two situations here. One that really has, I don't know if it infects cap rates, but you have the purchases of entity-to-entity sales. Uh, Blackstone Link, for example, has, has purchased several entities over the past 18 months, and it's, you know, driving, they're driving to mass. And it, I don't know if it's really a cap rate issue because they're just buying mass versus the one-off buyers who are buying actual portfolios of buildings, uh, cap rates are still compressing. You're, you're seeing on the coast in low fours, maybe high 3% cap rates. Mm-hmm. We're in the Midwest, you're in the fives uh, cap rates, five to maybe five and a half uh, for most of the product. Obviously, if you're main and main in, in tight markets you, in Chicago, you might be under five. Uh, but for the most part, you're in the five to five and a half cap rate range. But there's still a lot of appetite of buyers outside of the the links of the world who are buying other entities that want to put money into industrial real estate. Vacancy rates are low, which isn't great for institutional investors because they're owning fully occupied product, you know, bringing premium rents. And mm-hmm. in the, where the hot spots are, rents are still growing, so investors still want to go there and will pay pay the freight to buy product there. Which markets do you consider to be emerging markets for big box industrial f- facilities? So in, from our perspective, around the Midwest, there's really a lot of, lot of good stories. Uh, you know, Indianapolis, uh, our neighbor, uh, really has been very successful. And a lot of that is driven by, uh, you know, they call it the crossroads of America. There's great interstate connections. You have a pretty good-sized population. From there, you can service a good chunk of the East Coast markets, but as well as service the Midwest. and and part of the South, um, they have a FedEx Air Hub, which is pretty significant. But we, uh, our colleagues uh, in the Midwest, created uh, what they call uh, the e-commerce corridor, which really spans kind of from Memphis to Louisville, Cincy, Columbus. That whole corridor benefits from proximity to the UPS Air Hub in Louisville. You know, there's a large e-commerce retailer doing their own large um, air cargo hub in the state of Ohio. So that's those are huge drivers. Um, you have a you have good transportation connections to to service kind of that that big chunk of the East Coast. So those are mm-hmm. some of the emerging markets that that we're watching as well as uh, we're seeing a lot of investors uh, kind of zeroing and developers zeroing in on those towns. And and again, you also want to follow the migration of people because the, the population nodes are shifting a little bit. We're seeing growth in the Northwest, called Salt Lake City in that region where you had a population spike uh, in Minneapolis, in that neck of the woods, uh, 
people are flocking, again, quality of life, and they're seeing a lot of movements. Those are nodes. Kansas City, uh, because as Chen mentioned earlier, this they've got a, a rail intermodal center driving a lot of expansion for them on the big box side. Uh, the Dallas area, again, with a flood of people, is continuing to drive that market. Chad mentioned Memphis, Louisville, and Columbus. Those are all markets that are really coming on strong. Indy's been coming on strong for a while, so I wouldn't call that so much of an emerging market as a market that's been in play for a while. And if you look at the southeast, uh, Charlotte, Charleston, and Greensville, again, because of the heavy influence of the auto industry that's flocked down there, are really driving a lot of that um, would call it an emerging market. You've got a highly educated workforce down there, and people are realizing that, and they're, they're placing positions there. You mentioned e-commerce retailers, but nowadays, third-party logistics companies seem to be in very high demand. What about this trend? You know, that's, that is true. I think that's really an offshoot of a couple things. As manufacturing grows, they typically... You know, if they've got a, like a new line or a new product, they typically don't want to warehouse it in-house. They'll they'll hire a third-party provider to, to warehouse it for them until they have things under control, and then they might take it back in-house. So we're seeing that as, you know, the economy continues to expand, we're seeing more of that. Chad, anything else you could think of? Yeah, 3PL really has been the top industry driver uh, across uh, for leasing activity this year. Again, it, it's some of that outsourcing. You're, you're letting these retailers and other companies focus on their core business, which is running their stores and having a good customer experience. So if they can you know, use one of these national 3PLs to kind of fill in the gaps and do the transportation and everything else, it gives them more flexibility. And, and that's, that's really the bulk of, of, of what they're doing and, and, and driving leasing activity. I think we had uh, you know, year to date, we had you know, about 80 million square feet of, of leasing activity just by 3PLs, and that was through the third quarter. One of the issues causing concern is the trade dispute with China. Could that undermine big box industrial demand going forward? That has definitely slowed some things down in certain industries. Um, the, the metal industry, which was thought to gain locally by the tariffs, has really not come to fruition, and the the we were a, a net exporter of raw metals to China, and then they come back and with a finished product and send it back to the states. That has suffered a little bit, but that's not big box. That's raw materials, and I think that's where we suffer the most for the tariffs are the raw materials. So your your scrap metals, your grains and food stock stocks are really suffering the most uh, with this tariff because these are raw goods that go over there, get processed, and come back to the states. And that's where we've seen the biggest impact. Yeah, I think we saw recently there's about a 14% drop year over year in containers at, at the ports of LA and Long Beach. So that will ripple through you know, supply chains, whether they're coming through Dallas or Kansas City and, and Chicago, you know, in the intermodal and the big box distribution market. So, but really the, the tariff stuff, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, it, right. it, it's good for some industries, bad for others. It's, it's really hard for us to have, have a, have a call on it one way or the, or the other, just because at least in our backyard in Chicago, we work with 
so many industries. We have a really diverse economy from manufacturers to ag. And so if we say, oh, the retailers are hating it, but it's really good for our, our agricultural and food service producers, then it, it kind of goes both ways. So the jury's still out, but you know, we're, we're proponents of, uh, of open trade and, and, and all that. We want to see trade country to country, but we're, we're waiting on that to get worked out. And it changes every day. <laughs> it could change tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But I think another thing that the tariffs have done, and, and it's prior to that, as China improves its ec- ec- economic base, a lot of the goods that are being produced there are now becoming expensive. And then you've got that price point where do I need to move reshore back to the States because the costs produce it, plus the travel and, and transportation costs? Does it really make sense to move it here? And we're seeing a lot of that occur with the autom- automobile industry because those are high ticket items. And mm-hmm. therefore we've seen a huge uh, exodus from overseas and seeing plants being built in the States that, because we, again, as I mentioned earlier, we're you know, the largest consumer in the world. And with these big ticket items, you wanna be closer to that network so you, you can, you know, your costs shrink and you can, you know, increase your profits. So we're seeing a lot of onshoring in the States for that. And then all the parts manufacturers that supply those folks are also either moving here or to Mexico, which again allows the goods to be here closer. And then some of the other offshoots are moving down the Asian coast. So you see Vietnam and, and some of those other folks start to get get those manufacturing operations up there because it's cheaper to, to operate. And then they're also seeing more influx of companies moving to Africa on the south, on the western portion of Africa because again you can produce things cheaper and a lot of the goods that are being made overseas are low skilled labor operations which in- enable bodies not so much technology and a lot of that stuff <clears throat> as it's being shifted out of China is going to be shifting the supply chain to the U.S. East Coast port. So when we we're talking about some of these growing Sun Belt markets. Houston, uh, you know, Savannah, Charleston, those markets all have very active ports and will likely be receiving more imports, uh, which can then either be you know, consumed on the East Coast, Oregon, rail shipped into Memphis, into St. Louis and Chicago and, and places like that. So that's an interesting thing to, to watch out for, as well as these East Coast ports are all investing heavily into growing their, their capacity and, and rail capacity as well. I read a lot of articles about labor shortages in many of the markets you mentioned. Does that represent a challenge for the distribution industry? Yeah, it really does. You know, labor is one of the most important questions that we get. That's number one, yeah. <laughs> you know, both <laughs> developers and occupants, they're real, that's what keeps them up at night. So you know, they want to know what the labor force looks like in a particular building or market. And, and we spend a lot of time studying and assessing the labor availability stats because uh, these facilities, they just need more bodies. Um, and so understanding the local community and the commute shed and the drive times, uh, as well as other big occupiers in a business park, whether that's another manufacturer or e-commerce operation, that helps them make a better decision on where to locate. So, you know, on one hand, some of these big distribution buildings are going way out in an exurban location, maybe call it 50 miles outside of town, but we're also seeing um, maybe a little bit of a smaller kind of operation coming into more of a closer urban area where they maybe have public transit and, and maybe taking a you know a two or three hundred thousand foot building instead of a 
million square foot plus building on the outskirts. And, it, and it's interesting also, these companies are just not looking at the labor shed, they're looking at the type of labor. So they're really analyzing not just how many workers are there, but if they're a warehouser, how many forklift drivers are in the immediate area, how many warehouse employees are there, what's the price per pound that the current market is paying for those folks because they, you know, they, they know that if it's a really tight market, they're going to have to pay up for labor or they're going to have to go to third-party vendors, which has really come on strong in the last five years where these are outsourced companies that come in and handle the employee basis for these warehouse distribution firms. So the warehouse distribution firm doesn't have to worry about their employees. They use this third-party to worry about it. And some of these folks will be working for the same the same three the same third party, but could be working at four or five different warehouse locations depending on where they're needed. So that's another way that uh, the warehouse industry has looked to help with their labor shortage is going to these third party uh, placement services. And how are employers trying to attract and retain talent? You know, a little a little break room with a vending machine and a fridge and a microwave is not going to cut it. Um, but the other end of the spectrum is you're not going to see a you know a full-on gym and cafeteria in many of these buildings. But their developers are being a lot more creative with more office, more lighting, uh, more amenities as far as uh, some food service amenities. Obviously, more parking. Well, I think one of the biggest drivers that a, a a user, an employer will look, is locate an area where there's retail, where their employees can go to get out. So if it's mm -hmm. either a restaurant or it's a local store that they can shop and buy some goods at lunchtime. So moving their facilities closer to Metropolis so they have access to all these amenities, you know, the restaurants and the stores, I think it's something else that a lot of employers are looking at to, you know, keep their employees staying with them because they have these amenities at their fingertips. So what lies ahead for 2019? Everybody wants to know this. What trends should they keep an eye on? We think, you know, there's definitely some uncertainty going into another election cycle, but, um, and with, with geopolitical tariff action, that's another potential Concern, but really the fundamentals for industrial look really strong across the country. Um, you know, we do get from time to time supply and demand imbalances where where the development community is a little bit further ahead than the occupier community. But uh, there's there's a lot of capital out there in industrial. The e-commerce phenomenon continues to grow. Also on that angle, the, the labor supply is something that does keep keep employers up at night, um, truck driver shortages and, and things like that. So I think a couple things, and she had pointed to it, uh, uh, the, we got an election early next year, and in, traditionally the, re, the Republican side is, favors more businesses, traditionally, and the Democratic side favors more of the people. And if you look at it from that standpoint, if there's a change from one part of the other that could, you know, possibly have people on the business side think, hey, I need to do something today where I, where I perceive it's a more favorable position for me. So maybe some of this new heightened big box demand that we're seeing is maybe driven by some of this 
thought. I'm not positive on that, but I, I'm just, again, this is sort of a educated guess as to maybe why we're seeing some of that. Uh, additionally, with the labor shortage, you're seeing a lot more money being spent on technology, which will help uh, warehousers shrink the number of laborers they're going to need in, the, in their warehouses. And again, that labor warehouse employee, the price per pound for that one is, is, is probably the least expensive of their, of their employees, but they're the, the most of them, or this is the majority of the cost for them. So they can reduce that footprint by automating more and making automation work with less people. But those less people, because they have a higher skill set, can make more money. That would be a win-win for both sides uh, of the coin. And I believe that's going to happen because we cannot continue on this pace of industrial warehouse growth because we're not going to have enough people to support uh, all these warehouses. So there's going to have to be more automation uh, brought in to help alleviate the need for that foot soldier who's in there now. Well, Chad, George, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all these questions and for all the insights you provided. Thank, thank you. you. I'm looking forward to our next audio meeting. Until then, visit cpexecutive.com for the latest news on commercial real estate.